If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 9. Luke and chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 23 through 27. Now, we're going to read all that, but I want to note that verse 27 we're going to talk about next week, okay? So we're going to explain that verse more next week because it goes with it. Um, But we'll read 23 through 27 in our time together. It should be behind me on the screen as well in my translation for you to follow along there. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke 9, starting verse 23. The Holy Spirit says, And he, Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. This is God's word and may God write his eternal truths on all of our hearts. Dimitri was raised in a Christian home, and his parents would frequently take him to church when he was a child. But as communism grew in Russia, most of the churches around the country had been destroyed, and most of the pastors had been either imprisoned or killed. By the time Dimitri had children of his own, the closest church was a three-day walk away. But wanting his children to grow up with the love of the Lord, Dimitri and his wife decided that one night a week, they would get together and they would read a Bible story. And the more they did this, the more his sons desired and wanted to know more and worship together. Well, eventually the boys started to ask if they could sing songs that uh, they would sing in real church, is what they said. So Dimitri and his wife taught them the traditional songs of the faith and the family then began to sing and do Bible study together, something that could not be hidden in their small town where the houses were close together. So they would sing these songs and the sound could not help but enter the windows of their neighbors. So some of the neighbors asked if they could join on the Bible study. And Demetri was hesitant for he was not a minister. But his neighbors could not be dissuaded, so the Bible study grew. And once the Bible study grew to 25 people, the local party officials took notice. And they told him to cease or bad things would happen. When the group grew to 50, can you tell they did not stop? Demetri was fired from his factory job. His wife lost her teaching job. Their sons were expelled from school. And little things like that, recalled Dimitri. Eventually, the church grew to 150 people, crammed into his little house. The authorities could not let this continue, and so Dimitri went to jail for the next 17 years. A thousand miles from his family, Dimitri was imprisoned in a tiny cell with 1,500 of the worst criminals, Dimitri being the only Christian. Every morning, he would stand by his bed. He would sing a song to Jesus with his arms raised. The other prisoners responded by jeering, laughter, cursing. Anytime he happened upon a scrap of paper, he would write down a scripture he remembered or a song that he would sing with his house church. When the scraps of paper were discovered, he would be severely beaten and threatened with death. This went on, of course, year after year. Sometime later, he found a whole sheet of paper 
in the prison yard, and, and a, even a pencil next to it. And he took it and he wrote every scripture and song on it that he could. Well, guess what? His jailer saw it, took him out of his cell, and beat him. As he was dragged from his cell, something strange happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out into the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood by their beds. Dimitri heard what sounded like the greatest choir in human history. Prisoners raised their arms and began to sing the song of praise that Dimitri sang every morning for all those years. And the jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away in terror. And one of them demanded to know, who are you? And Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall as he could and said, I am the son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. Stories like that abound where Christians are being persecuted around the world today and in the last 2,000 years. I could spend all day telling you stories just like this one. And I wonder, what goes through your mind when you hear a story like that? When you hear about believers suffering because of their allegiance to Jesus, what do you think of? When you hear these stories of people giving up everything, even their very lives, for the name of Jesus, I wonder if you think that such things are outliers, the experience of only a few, maybe even the experience of only the most devout Christians. Or do you see them as being part and parcel of the normal Christian life? In other words, do you believe that suffering hardship for the kingdom is for the bravest and the most courageous and the most sold-out Christians, or do you think it should be the experience of every person who claims to follow Christ? Is the Christian life of discipleship one of mostly ease and comfort, or is it designed to be difficult but joyful walk on a narrow road? In this text, Jesus tells his disciples and us what it looks like to be a disciple. These aren't descriptors of what only super Christians look like, you understand. These are descriptors of what being a Christian at the most basic level looks like. These are the characteristics of all of those who have responded to the death and resurrection and forgiveness and rescue and reconciliation to God provided by Christ. So what does it look like to be an ordinary follower of Jesus? Let's walk through this text and see. Let's remember what came before verse 23. We divided them up, of course, into two weeks, but they go together. The text before this one and this one. Jesus asked, just asked his disciples those two questions, right? He said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He said, who do you say that I am? At which point Peter answered rightly that Jesus is the Christ of God. And so Jesus follows this immediately. You remember, you can look at your text right there uh, by telling them that he must suffer and he must be rejected and he must be killed and he will be raised. Then Jesus says what he does in verses 23 through 27. In essence, Jesus is saying that as he takes up a cross, cross, so must those who follow him. As he dies, they must die. As he suffered, they must suffer. And if they follow him in this way, they will be vindicated in the end as he was vindicated by the Father through his bodily resurrection through the Spirit. The basic call then is this. If you would follow me, you must count the cost. You must die daily. You must release the hold that you have on your life. 
And if you aren't willing to do this, then you can't be my disciple. Again, notice the language in the context. He says, if anyone would come after me. Do you see that? After saying, I'm going to suffer and die, he says, if you would come after me. Going after him means walking the way that he walked. Following the path that he trod. Following him on the way. And that way that Christ traversed is one that leads to a cross. Jesus says that to be a disciple means you must deny yourself. And this is inextricably tied with taking up a cross. Consider the context that Jesus is saying this in. To a first century person, under Roman dominion, a cross was not a piece of jewelry. No one had a tattoo of a cross. It was not a piece of wall art. It wasn't a fashion accessory to be bedazzled. Or a piece of candy you could buy in the spring. It was a symbol of horror. The cross was a symbol of shame and cruel death. Roman citizens wouldn't even talk about crosses in polite company. Roman orator Cicero, writing in the first century, said this, The very word cross should be removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The mere mention of them is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. When one would see someone take up their cross, in this context, it would be because they were carrying the instrument of their death to the place of their execution. It meant they had just left the tribunal, declaring them to be an enemy of the state, and that they were a rebel warranting a public death for all to see. They would do these on roads, entering the city, so everyone could see them and be warned. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. And when one would take up their cross, everyone knew this is a one-way ticket. There was no going back. There was no retaining one's freedoms or rights. There was no holding on to any semblance of a future. To take up a cross meant to die. It was a symbol of absoluteness and totality. And in fact, we know of not one known survivor of Roman crucifixions. So with all that in mind, what is Jesus saying here about those who would follow him? You have never seen someone executed by crucifixion. What does it mean for you? It means that if you're going to follow Jesus, you must relinquish all claims on your life. It means you're no longer your own sovereign. It means you're no longer the one who determines your own life. It means what it meant for Jesus. Fully embracing the will of the Father. It means saying to God, not my will, but yours be done. It means death to self. It means ceasing to be the captain of your own fate and the master of your own destiny. It means dying to your petty wants and desires in favor of a life lived in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It fundamentally means denial. Isn't that what Jesus says? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. This means that one who would follow Jesus must reject a life based on self-interest. Reject a life based on self-fulfillment. It means renouncing self, giving up control, cessation of calling the shots. It means a cessation of advocating for one's rights. It means a cessation of seeking oneself altogether but instead making the chief, op, chief object of your life submitting to Christ and his will, living for his glory and not yours. 
So we live in an age where everyone is constantly talking about their rights. Isn't that fair? Advocating for their rights. My rights, my rights, my rights. And Christians do this as much as anyone. So many are constantly saying, I want, I desire, I prefer my rights and my rights and my rights. Now tell me, how does that fit into what Jesus is saying here? Is there anything that lacks a cross more than advocation of oneself and one's own self-interests and claiming of one's rights and one's privileges? Read Philippians 2, 1 through 10, and tell me if that washes with Jesus' vision of life. Following Jesus means that you willingly lay down your rights and you purposefully and gladly alter your life's purposes and goals to come in line with Christ. It means you see that your life is no longer about you anymore. Your life is not about how to make yourself maximally comfortable and happy. It's about pursuing Christ above all things, no matter the price. Ernest Best said this of Jesus' call to deny himself. He said, it's not the denial of something to self, but the denial of self itself. It is the opposite of self-affirmation, of putting value on one's beings, one life, one's position before man or God, of claiming rights and privileges peculiar to one's special position in life, or even of those normally believed to belong to the human being as such. So to deny self isn't just to deny something or something that you want. It's denying yourself altogether. It isn't just withholding a certain thing that you desire. It's to stop being focused on what you want and subject your entire being to what Christ wants for you and to make Him your sole aim in life, pleasing Him and gladly obeying. It means to stop defining life the way the world defines life but to define life the way that Christ defines life. And those two visions couldn't be any more different. Friend, you are, listen, you are not following Jesus if you're holding on to your life. The problem is, many want to follow Jesus while we're chaining control over their own lives. Some say they want Jesus, but not at a cost. Some say they want Jesus, but not if it means relinquishing rights and privileges they feel entitled to. Some say they want the Christ, but they'll continue to call the shots in their lives. Some say they want salvation, but not if it means killing sin every day. Don't you see that is impossible? Can't you see that Jesus gave us no such option? Now You remember the prophet Elijah was serving in the divided kingdom of Israel. You remember this? And the tyrants Ahab and Jezebel were ruling. You remember? Ahab married Jezebel, you know why? Because he thought it would be politically expedient. He thought bringing in the gods of her nation into Israel to be worshipped alongside Yahweh was fine. If it meant reaching political peace. He thought the people could serve both Baal and Yahweh at the same time with no conflict. And surely you remember the contest on Mount Carmel when the prophets of Baal went up against Elijah. You remember that, yes? Remember how they put the ox on the altars, and they took turns calling upon their gods to bring fire down to their respective altars. Well, when the people of Israel were approaching this contest, Elijah saw them. He looked at them, and you remember what he said? He said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? He said, if Yahweh is God, 
follow him. Give your whole self to him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word because they knew they couldn't do both. What Elijah was saying was, you cannot serve Yahweh and something else. Yahweh demands exclusive loyalty. And if you can't give it to him, just go serve your Baals. Don't insult Yahweh with half devotion. That's what Elijah was telling them. Some people are professing to be Christians today, and they're limping between two opinions. Maybe even some of you. Some of you are trying to retain a hold on your life, and you refuse to die. Some of you are indulging in things you know are slowly killing you. Instead of listening to the voice of Jesus, which says, crucify that thing. Some of you are giving yourself away to things you know won't bring you freedom and meaning, but you keep going back to them anyway, thinking they'll give you life instead of forsaking them for the only one you know will give you life, even if it means by your death. Jesus says you can't have both. You can't limp between two opinions. Deny yourself, take up your cross, or go on serving idols, but you can't do both. As James Edwards says, disciples don't have a both and choice, both Christ and their own lives. They stand before an either or choice. The claim of Jesus is total and exclusive claim. It does not allow a convenient compartmentalization. The whole person stands under Christ's claims. And don't you see this is a daily work? You see that in verse 22? Jesus says those who would follow him must take up their cross how often? Every day, daily, every single day, the follower of Christ is to die to self a little more, die to sin a little more, die to the world a little more. Do you realize, my friend, that every single day you're confronted with this choice? Christ, something else. Every day you're confronted with this choice. Every day you're confronted with a choice to choose between Christ and sin. Christ and indulgence, Christ or desire, Christ or self, Christ or ease, Christ or comfort. And at every turn, you're invited by Jesus to choose him because he is infinitely better than whatever else is before you and tantalizing your eyes. Because only in death to self, only in Jesus, is there life. You mentioned last week, in Matthew's version of Peter's confession, that Jesus is the Christ, that after Jesus says that, that he must suffer and die, Peter says, may it never be. You remember that? He rebuked Jesus. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, why does Jesus do that? <laughs> why does Jesus react that way? Why does he call his disciples Satan after he rebukes Jesus when Jesus says he'll suffer and die? This is why. It's because Peter's vision of the path that leads to glory was one that bypassed the cross. And Jesus says, this is not possible. Peter wanted glory without death. He wanted exaltation without suffering. A lofty place in the heavens without the suffering and pain. And Jesus says to this, the only way to glory is through denial of self and death to this world. And the one who wants the promise of glory without the pain of crucifixion is doing the work of the devil. This is what the devil promises. He promises fullness and meaning and life without death. He says, you can follow Baal and Yahweh at the same time. He says, you can have all the kingdoms of the world without any of that suffering business. 
And that, says Jesus, is a lie from hell. Because it is the very thing that the slithering serpent said in the Garden of Eden to our first parents. He said, eat this and live, you will not surely die. You, my friend, are being promised and told through every conceivable medium, every single day where life is found. Every single advertisement is telling you that life is found in this product or that, this life or that. Look at these smiling, happy people. Don't you want to be like them? All their social media feeds, you're being shown images and videos saying, this is what life looks like. Don't you want that too? This is why, did you know, that researchers are constantly finding the adverse mental health effects that social media is having on teenagers, especially teenage girls. Did you know that? They found that seeing friends constantly on holiday or enjoying nights out make young people feel like they're missing out while others enjoy life, which promote a compare and despair attitude. They found that Instagram especially makes girls and women feel as if their bodies aren't good enough as people add filters and edit their pictures in order for them to look perfect and they despair. Those things are saying, this is where life is found. Which makes us say, I need that if I am to have life. And so I will do what I must to obtain it, whatever it takes. And it never pays what it promises. Never. Don't you see the world keeps telling you this is where life is found. This is where to get life. This is how to live. And then tells you to not let anyone stand in your way of getting that. Because if you don't get it, well, then you aren't truly living. So we're constantly being made to ask, how can I live? And then acting on whatever answer or promise we're told. But Jesus enters in here and he tells us not to ask, how can I live? But how can I die? to ask that every day, even every moment, because paradoxically, dying, says Jesus, is where true life is found. Scott Hubbard, writing at Desiring God, says this, how many times have we had the, an impulse to deny ourselves, put down the drink, give away the bonus, go talk to that neighbor, confess the embarrassing sin, only to have some part of us, like Peter, begin to question our good resolves? Now, now, there's a more comfortable way to glory, isn't there? Surely we can grasp the crown without bearing this cross. No need to be so extreme. Moderation in all things, remember? He says, the devil may be a lion, but we rarely hear his roar. More often, he appears in our most plausible reasons to avoid self-denial. If you want to delight the devil, then refuse to deny yourself. But if you want to defy your ancient foe, if you want to scorn the one who hates your soul, if you want to cut off the arms that would drag you to hell, then bend down and pick up your cross. Satan wants nothing more than for you to constantly look at life and say, how can I live? And then go get that thing. What he doesn't want is for you to come to these daily decision points where the choice is Christ and death to self or self and life is promised by the flesh and the world and choose Christ. Friend, don't give him any ground. Christ has set you free. He has, verse 22, suffered and died to redeem you and to release the hold that sin had on you. You're a freedman. You're a freedwoman. 
He has come and freed the captives while we return to the things that have kept us bound. That's what we're doing when we choose life instead of death. If we have died to our old self because of the cross, why wouldn't we continually deny ourselves, die to self, and embrace the way of Christ? When you are faced with the decision to hold fast to the way of Christ, when it may cost you your job, will you choose to die or live? When you're faced with a decision to tell of Jesus, but it might cost you a relationship with a family member or a friend, will you choose to die or live? When you're faced with a decision to indulge yourself in something you don't need or to give to the poor or outcast, will you choose to die or live? When you're faced with a decision to give up your time to serve others or go and pursue some pleasure or hobby or leisure, will you choose to die or live? When you're faced with a decision to give in to peer pressure, violate the commands of Christ, will you choose to die or live? When some temptation comes your way and you know that it promises what it can't pay and you know what it would do to your soul, will you choose to die or live? Every day, these choices are laid bare before you and every day you choose. Every day the world says, do this and live. And it dazzles your eyes. But to choose the alternative would cause you pain or discomfort or loss, but it means embracing the cross of Christ. You make a choice. Are you aware of that? By the way, are you aware of this? What do you choose? Do you forsake your rights and your comforts, and do you deny yourself in order to have more of Christ? Or do you buy into the lie that life is found in a crossless life? Have you ever wondered, I bet you have, why churches seem to fight and bicker so much? You ever wonder that? That got a little groaned, didn't it? No. Amen. You ever wonder why there's so much internal conflict in so many churches? You ever wonder that? That happened a lot. Why is there so much anxiety and clickishness in so many churches? You know, typically it's not about doctrine. You know that, right? <laughs> it's typically not about doctrine. That does happen. You can look at the United Methodist Church denomination. But more often than not, you'll find churches fight and split over smaller things that, quite frankly, don't matter. Why is that? I'll tell you why. And it's not complicated. It's because they refuse to die. That's why. They refuse to die. It's because they don't want to deny themselves. It's because they don't want to take up their cross. Don't you remember what Jesus' half-brother James wrote in his epistle? He said, what, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? And then he answers, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You do ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James says, what Jesus is getting at here, you fight and you quarrel because you pursue yourself and your passions rather than killing them and dying to yourself. Look back at every church conflict you've ever seen and you'll find a refusal to die because where does a refusal to die lead? Not to life, but to death because James knows as Jesus did, there's nothing self-indulgent about being a Christian. And don't you see what Jesus is calling for here is not reserved for the super mature or for the only the most devout Christians. What he's calling for here is 
for every single Christian who is truly following Christ to have these traits. Because discipleship is not a weekend holiday, it's a full-time vocation. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the cross is laid on every Christian. When When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. David Garland adds, following Jesus to Golgotha is not some tedious detour, it's the main road. The shocking self-sacrifice is the basic plan of following Jesus, don't you see? Either one is following Jesus on the road of self-denial and daily crucifixion, even in seemingly most mundane parts of life, or one is not a follower of Jesus. You know, I realize this doesn't sell, does it? I, I realize that What's been sold to American Christians is the gospel for over a century is sugary sweet candy of have Jesus and your own life too. I know that in order to grow churches, above the numbers, the gospel of a crucified Christ has been reduced down to a message that says you can have heaven and you don't have to die at all. Friend, that is a lie from hell. Because there's no life in a half gospel. There's no life in using the cosmic Christ as a means to some other end. There's no life in obtaining a glory that bypasses a cross. There is no life in trying to live, don't you see? Dean and Sarah put it well. He said, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible, no matter how much they claim they love Jesus. In other words, he says, Jesus tells us what it looks like to love him. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Many people want the good luck charm Jesus, not the sacrificial lamb of God whose death requires action. We must realize that what Jesus is presenting here is not a way to be saved. You understand that, right? It's true that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, and this is not of your own doing, it's a gift from God, no merit in salvation, it's all of God. So understand, these aren't things you do to become a disciple, these are things you do because you already are. These things that Jesus tells us here, evidence our discipleship in response to him, his person and his rescue. Jesus is saying that if you know him, if you know who Jesus is, what he's done, and you've given him your allegiance, your life will be marked by these things, as imperfect as it might seem. But therein lies the paradox. You're not saved by doing these things, but if you're saved, you'll do these things. You must realize that what Jesus is calling for is your total self. He just wants some of you. He wants all of you. No restrictions. Nothing held back. Nothing off limits. Everything you are and for all time. What Jesus calls for is a blank check on your life. Do you guys remember checks? Do you remember those things? I realize this is an outmoded way of paying. All millennials are like, a what? This is an outmoded way of paying for things, for, but some people still use it, right? Uh, so stick with me. I have here a check. You guys can see this, right? It looks checkish, doesn't it? It's not real, okay? <laughs> But say this was my check from my account, I had my account numbers and my awesome name at the top, okay? And I signed it and I left everything else blank and I handed it to you. What could you do? What could you do with that check? You could put your name right here, right? 
Put your name right there. And whatever was in my account, you could fill out however much you wanted, right? And whatever was in my account would go to you. You could take everything I had. But if I signed it and handed it to you, I would in fact be saying, yes, everything I have is yours and available to you. You decide how much it will be. Yes, that's what I'm saying. If I sign this and hand you a blank check, when you come to Jesus and you give him your allegiance and he saves you, you are to say, according to this passage, I will sign my name and whatever it costs is up to you. I'm willing to pay whatever he says to pay. I will pay in daily death to things. I will pay in self-denial. I will forfeit my whole life to be ruled by you and your will. Wherever you go, I go. Whatever it costs, I will pay, even if it means my very life. Take what you want. You are Lord. I am not. Well, you know the problem, right? The problem is, what we often give Jesus our these. You know what these are? The gift cards. One is for Walmart that has a snowman on it. And one is from Dairy Queen. Okay. How do they work? Well, put money on them, give them somebody. They have a limit, right? Since I'm a cheapskate, this one has $15 on it. All right. And I'm gonna give it to Sila or she'll fight me. All right. You put money on them, but they have a limit, right? Once you use them, it's it. That's it. That's a wrap, right? It's gone. No more. Oftentimes, when we come to Jesus, we say, this is what I'll give you, but nothing more. We put a cap on how much we will give ourselves to him. We say, you could have this, but not that. You could rule this, but not that. I'll give you this, but don't dare call me to give up this because I won't do it. And we say, you should be happy with that, Jesus. I gave you what I could. When really we know he's not calling for a piece of us. He's calling for total surrender and devotion. He's not calling for some of your life. He's calling for all of it. Jesus doesn't want our gift cards. He calls for a blank check of your life. You sign it and the rest is blank. Jesus can fill out the rest. Have you done that? Are you willing to do that? That's what Jesus calls for. And you guys see the paradox of 24 and 25, don't you? Because all this may seem daunting. Does this seem daunting to you? This is daunting. It may seem like a lot, but Jesus tells us why he calls for this. That is why he calls for deny self, take up cross, follow him in verses 24 and 25, doesn't he? It's because if you seek to live, you'll forfeit your life. If you seek to die, you'll live. You see the paradox? If you seek to get life for yourself from things of earth, you will, in the end, be rejected by Christ. He will say, I don't know you. And that will have been a choice you made. But if you take up your cross, in the end, you will live. Is that not how it went for Jesus? Did he not take up his cross and suffer and die, empty himself, be rejected by men, obey the will of the Father, follow the Holy Spirit, straight to an execution stake? And was he thus not brought back to life and vindicated and given a throne that is above every throne? Did not his death lead to life? And won't yours too? Is that not what he promises his disciples? 
If you're trying to save your life, you're trying to preserve something for yourself. If you're withholding from Jesus, then you'll ultimately lose your life and forever. But if you lose your life, see what it says. For my sake, you will save it in the end. This is the paradox, yes? If you try to live, you will die. If you die, you will live. Jesus says, if you are given the choice between Jesus, do you get what he says here? If you're given the choice between Jesus and the whole world, that if you pick the world, you lose. You get the raw end of the deal. Like, can you imagine if you could have an unlimited bank account? Access to anything and everything you ever wanted with no restrictions. You get the whole world, but you don't get Jesus. Would you take that deal? Is that a good deal? See, Jesus is putting before us the same temptation that he faced in the wilderness by saying, right, when the devil showed him the kingdoms and said, this could be all yours right now if you just bend your knee to me and you can have it all and you can bypass that silly cross. Jesus says, if you were able to get everything you ever wanted in this world, indeed, if you were given the whole world but not Jesus, you got a bad deal because you would lose your soul in the end. What matters in the end will be this. As he tells us, were you ashamed of Jesus and his word? Did you choose him in his death, which leads to life, or did you choose life in this world, which leads to death in the end? And are you living for the approval of man or of God? Are you living for people to approve of you and think well of you and thus are ashamed of Jesus and his word? Because if so, Jesus won't recognize you in the end. You'll have gotten the approval of the world at the expense of the approval of the only one whose thoughts of you truly matter. See, some of you are living more for what other people think of you than what Christ thinks of you. Some of you are ashamed of Jesus and his word because you don't want to seem like one of those religious nuts. Let's not take it too far. You don't want to be too extreme in this thing, right? You're Christian, but you don't take it too far. You, you want your Jesus, and you want your life too. You want heaven, but you don't want to obey. You want the respectable Christianity of the American dream, but you don't want the shame of the cross. And some of you teenagers, some of you students, some of you young people, you are living for the approval of your peers, or when you grow up and get to high school, that will be the demand. That will be the pressure. Live for your peers. Some of you are living your lives based on what others think of you. Some of you are, are trying to project an image that will be met with the approval of your fellow students at the expense of the word of Christ. I'm here to tell you there's no life there. There's no life trying to get praise from a world set against God. Be who Jesus calls you to be, even if it costs you, because in the end, Jesus will acknowledge you before men and give you life. And you know what? Some of you adults are doing the same thing. Some of you are living for the applause and approval of your coworkers or your neighbors or your friends or your family. You're afraid of what they might think of you if you follow Jesus the way he describes here. So you decided, you decide what kind of clothes to wear or car to drive or trinket for your hobby you'll spend money on because you want others to see you and be impressed. And you live off their approval and praise. I'm here to tell you there is no life there. 
Some of you are holding on to things. Some of you are trying desperately to retain control over your life and you refuse to hand the reins over to Jesus. You've given him gift cards when he demands a blank check. He's calling you even now, release control. Hand your life over to Christ. In him is the only place where life can be found. But be who Jesus calls you to be, even if it costs you, because in the end, Jesus will acknowledge you before men and give you real and true and lasting life. Friend, don't you see that Jesus is worth all of you? Don't you see the beauty and majesty and love and grace and glory of this Christ and that there is thus nothing he can ask of you that is too much or too far or too costly? What did it cost him to get to you? It cost him everything. And he thought you worth it. Is he not worth everything to you? Remember what we said last week. Jesus is not just the king. He is the king, but he's the king on a cross. He doesn't just demand and command from some far-flung place. He calls you to this way because he loves you. And he wants what's best for you. And if what he's calling for seems radical to you, maybe it's because you are embrace too much of what the world says life should be. Maybe it's the world that's upside down and Christ's call that's right side up. Truly, he is so glorious that he is worth infinitely more than even the whole world. If you got Jesus and nothing else, you would be rich. If you got the whole world and know Christ, you would be eternally poor. In him is life itself. And don't you see that when he calls you to die in this life, it's because he wants to make you into his likeness? Don't you see that what he wants from your daily death and self-denial is your good? To kill what kills you, to give you true meaning and purpose and value and wholeness, to make you like him. To make you satisfied in him so that no matter what happens in your life, you can still rejoice because you have Christ and he can never be taken from you. Jesus is not after you not enjoying life. He's not after your self-flagellation like some wandering desert monk depriving yourself of all earthly pleasure. What he's after is you enjoy life in him. The way he created you to enjoy it to use things without them ruling over you. To not try to find life in what brings death, but in finding life by not looking for it at all. He wants you to deny self and take up cross because he knows the painted beauties of this world can't satisfy your heart's longings because your heart was made for him and so only he can fill it. Don't you see that if you pursue this way of discipleship, you won't do it perfectly. And you'll mess up quite a bit. But he's with you always. And the indwelling spirit will help you along the way. Do you see that no matter what happens to you, that you can find comfort because you know that all things are being sovereignly held together by the self-same Christ? Wouldn't it be a shame? Don't you think it'd be a shame to live life trying to find life only to miss knowing the giver of life and losing out on him in the end. Don't you think that'd be a shame? Wouldn't it be a shame to spend our lives pursuing possession of things of earth that in the end will be thrown away? 
Wouldn't it be much better to live for Jesus because only he is worth living for and worth dying for? Wouldn't it be better to confess him before men no matter what it might cost you so that he will confess you before the Father? Be of good cheer, my friend. Your deeds do not save you. Christ does. But then remember, being saved by Christ means giving allegiance to Christ, which means handing your life over to him. And he says, following him looks like this. The question isn't then, are you following perfectly? That's not the question. The question is, are you sincerely pursuing this followership Jesus presents here? Are you dying daily? It isn't a single one of us not a one who follows Jesus like this all the time. Not one. Which means there isn't a single person in this room who could hear my voice who doesn't need to go to Christ this very morning and ask for him to aid you in your true pursuit of discipleship. What is it you're holding back from him? What's that sin that you refuse to part with? What area of your life have you been telling Christ you don't want him to rule over? What self-advocacy and self-justification have you been pursuing? What rights have you been demanding for yourself? What have you been refusing to deny yourself? What have you been choosing instead of Jesus? What have you known you needed to do but wouldn't because it would cost too much? Have you been trying to save your life? Have you been defining life based on what a world set against its creator has said or by what this glorious, beautiful Christ has said? What is it for you, I wonder? Look again to who Jesus is and what he's done. Make him your center, your purpose, and your life, and your joy, and your fullness, and your everything, and you'll find his demands not too extreme, but downright reasonable. And you'll see that he's worth every death you could ever die. 